Jesus' name we pray. Jesus. Amen. Amen. First Samuel chapter 18. This evening's consideration is entitled, The Devil-in-Law. Had Saul served God, he never would have been such a violent, uh, unloving, vicious character. He had a great opportunity to be the father-in-law of David. And instead, he threw himself into becoming a devil-in-law. And that, that is exactly the story with this man that we're considering this evening. It starts here. Uh, in-laws are not automatically opponents. They can be a wonderful blessing. And many of us have such experiences. Some of you may not. In the scripture, uh, we consider Lot's sons-in-laws. They were silly and they were, uh, they are unnamed, and they perished with those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses and Jethro, they had a wonderful, beneficial relationship. Ruth and Naomi, an amazing relationship. And then there is Saul and David. And as we look at the story, we, we may pause for a moment and say to ourselves, oh, how am I? Where, where, where would I be in this picture? If I were given the opportunity that Saul had, what would I do with it? Well, hopefully I wouldn't do anything near what this man did with it. What, what filled him with so much hatred for the innocent? Well, jealousy was a big part of it. And that jealousy was built on excessive self-love and the absence of God-love. Uh, Saul just did not really care for God. Unless God was doing something for him. That's his behavior tells this story. He doesn't have to write it down and record it for us. We just look at what we know, what we have. And so here is the point. No one should ever want to behave as this fool Saul. And that is a great part of our lesson as we go through this first book of Samuel. No one should want to be what he was to others and what he was not to God. I do not want to be what he was not to God. I put it that way because he had such great opportunity and he did not avail himself. Well, we look now at the first verse. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Mirab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight Yahweh's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him. But let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And so the historian gets right to the point and lets us know what we're dealing with. Saul would use his own children for his own purposes. He used them as pawns, as, as chess pieces. He's worse than Laban in this regard. He tried to even have Jonathan, his eldest son, killed because Saul saw opportunity to make himself look as though he were fair. As king, And oh, he's my son still, but he broke the law, and I can't give him a pass. No, the people had to give him one. And now using his daughters. Saul will change the rules, because that's what he liked to do, uh, to suit himself. We get that in verse 19, where he will not give David Mirab, but he will give him Michelle, or Michael, as some would like to pronounce it. Only be valiant for me 
and fight Yahweh's battles. See that for me. Coming from another person with another history, we wouldn't be so ready to pull over for a moment and look at that. But coming from Saul, we know just what it means. For me, always about him. Devious Saul uses Yahweh's name to veil his intentions, his murderous plans, or camouflage by Bible language. There have been a lot of people like that down through the ages, and there still are some here today. I don't mean here in the building, I mean in, in life. And so we're not surprised by Bible-quoting devils, Satan, of course, there in the wilderness trying to tempt the Lord into disobeying his father. It's one of the reasons why God gave pastors to churches. Ephesians chapter 4, where this is on the heels of Paul saying, He himself has given, given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. And then he goes on, we sh- that we should no longer be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. It used to be mostly Christians would veer off the path and go get a bestseller and get their theology from that, never mind their pastors. Now they just go to the Internet. People they don't know, people who aren't proven, they listen to what they have to say, and oftentimes there's trouble. It sounds like I'm promoting the system God has put in place, because I am. And so he talks about fighting Yahweh's battles while plotting David's death. How does that work out, Saul? Well, he could care less about how it worked out. He just wanted the man dead. Is that too much to ask? Psalm 55, when David wrote this, was he thinking about Saul? Well, he had opportunity to think about a lot of characters like this. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil. They were drawn swords. A drawn sword is like somebody taking a pistol out of their holster. They're intending to use this thing on you. And so David, of course, experienced these kind of people in life, and so do we. They have such smooth words. Fight for me in the battle of the Lord. But really, he wants him dead. Vile hypocrisy dressed in God language. And we're supposed to be exposed. How many Christians need to hear this? but will never allow themselves to come into an environment where the Bible is preached verse by verse instead of cherry-picking favorite sections. I don't mean to sound... Well, I mean to sound this way. I believe that we are to expound on the Word. I don't believe we have this large Bible to use it as a doorstop or something else. I believe it is to be used. And when Jesus opened the Scriptures... Uh, from all the Old Testament on the road uh, to Emmaus, he expounded on the Word, leaving us a pattern. And is much benefit to this. The onlookers here at this day, when Saul is saying these things to David, they, they're impressed with Saul the fraud. They don't see him as a fraud. He's their king. The day would come when David himself would sink into cunning against Uriah, but the great difference is David did not invoke the name of Yahweh to do it. I don't think David's conscience would have allowed him to do such a thing. Saul had no problem with this. They say David was sinning, for sure, to cover his sin, but he did not do it in Yahweh's name. For Saul, it says here in verse 17, thought, let my hand not be against him, 
but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Saul says, it's not good policy that I should just come out and kill him. The Philistines can do my dirty work. This is the very way in which Saul's own life ended, at the hands of the Philistines. Because Saul was so into hounding David, he did not build up his military, he did not train his troops, he did not guard his borders, he was not ready for this large-scale invasion of the Philistines. And very quickly, early into the battle, he and his army was defeated. Slain by the Philistines, not by the hand of David. David had no less than two chances to kill him. If he put his mind to it, he probably could have had other chances. And Saul hoped that the Philistines, as I mentioned, would do his dirty work. Always with the godless motives, this man, in God's name. Jealousy became hate as David became more famous and more the acclaimed hero of Israel. This jealousy produced this fear. And this fear, this type of fear, produced hatred. And that hatred begot the cunning, which is what we're watching right now. And we're going to follow it as through the chapters that, that come. Under the disguise of flattery, Saul is sending David to war, hoping David will be killed on the battlefield. He won't mind burying him as a hero long as he's gone. There are, just to think that there are people like this and worse. Now, remember, Saul is not the worst man in the Bible. We just have more information about him than many of the others. But he's pretty bad. That doesn't mean, well, okay, he's not so bad. Then. No, he's, he's, he's rotten. And the lore that he is using to get David to the battlefield is his eldest daughter, Merab, who David will not marry. No, David won't get the chance to marry her. She appears to die early because Michelle ends up raising some of her children. That comes later, and we get to that in 2 Samuel. Now, verse 18, so David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life, or my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? Real humility never knows it's humble. David is not playing. Uh, mock humility is quite proud of its humility. It's, it's like, why, they must think I'm really humble after I said that or after I did that. But genuine humility is not even conscious. The left hand doesn't let the right hand know what it's doing. David says, who am I? I come from, you know, I'm son of Jesse. We're... We, we get by, we do well, but we're not rolling in the dough. Why would a king want me and his family? And why doesn't David say, yeah, I killed a giant in a duel. I should get the king's daughter. That's what he promised. So the contrast, again, in the character. And so we sit and we watch and we say, David's behavior is the right behavior. In case I don't know how to behave as a human being, I can look at the characters in the Bible who God applauds and learn from them. David could have very quickly said, I'm entitled to the best. And that would not, would not have been good, but he would have had a basis to say such a thing. He could have notched it up. He said, yeah, I should marry your daughter. After all, you didn't go face the giant. We would not like to have seen David say that. Verse 19, but it happened that the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, 
the Meholothite as a wife. Yeah, they got to slip those names in there. They do it on purpose. <laughs> Saul was many things. Honorable was not one of them. And here it is. The, the historian has disdain as he writes the words. When it came time to give him the wife, he doesn't. He doesn't do it. He's such a liar. And it didn't take anything for Saul to lie. He just lied. He lied and he manipulated for selfish advantage all the time. He did not keep his word to God. He did not keep his word to men. And this dishonesty, he felt, was a necessary ingredient to rule as he ruled, to get what he wanted to prevail in life. He justified his, lie, his lies with no problem. The thing where I'm going is here is once you start to learn to lie, it comes so easy. Pressure puts on you, lie, get your way, just get, escape, save thyself. And the encouragement is to, to not lie, of course. And if you do lie very quickly, begin to learn to not do that and start taking the hits. It's not honorable. Some people need to learn how to stop lying because they've learned to do it so quickly and so easily. It's almost automatic whenever pressure is put on them. Sometimes they even lie when there is no pressure. Once you start, it's very easy. Well, David will later execute five of Mirab's sons because of, well, it's a long story, and we'll get to it in 2 Samuel 21. It's a very, it's a tragedy is what it is. Uh, they were involved in persecuting the Gibeonites, not those of Gibeah, but Gibeon, about four miles away. And uh, again, we'll get that in Second Samuel. Now, verse eighteen, uh, verse twenty. Now, Michelle, and that's how I'm going to pronounce it. Saul's daughter loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So uh, it's not a surprise that she loved David. He was a national hero. What was not to love about him? Samuel was impressed. He was a ruddy guy. You know, he comes out running from the field and hair blowing in the wind, and uh, Everything we have read about him has been attractive. This marriage is not going to do well. And the main reason why it will not do well is because David loved God as much as he could. And Michelle did not. And so when he dances before the ark, with all of his might, bringing it into Jerusalem, having that history of Uzzah being struck dead, getting past that. He's finally bringing the ark into Jerusalem, something no one else was able to do. He's dancing before the Lord with all of his might, whirling around, and she despised him. And when it was all over and time to go home, she comes running out. Boy, weren't you impressive in front of all the women today. And oh, what a mess she made. She just couldn't shut up. David said, I'll have no, you know, it's not going to go well with us. And it did not. Verse 21, so Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. <laughs> I will be your devil-in-law today. You see how he's thinking, okay, I found a better deal for Mirab for me. Now there's another deal I have to settle for me, and I'll use Michelle to do it. I will give her to you, that she can be a snare. What is that? 
I mean, does he care? Does he love his own daughter? Of course not. He's ready to have his own son, his gallant son killed. He could care nothing about this child. She probably felt that he, she was daddy's favorite. Deadbeat dad exploiting his own daughter to snare a foe who happens to be the champion of God. How does that work? What is wrong with human beings? Sin. And the born again try to take it seriously. We, we're outgunned many times, but we tried to take it seriously. Did he suppose that his daughter would act as a double agent in some way in his favor? After all, who would not love Saul more than David and anybody else? Or did he have in view that Michelle had idols? And maybe having a wife that had idols and tolerating that would somehow interfere with David's relationship with God on the battlefield and David would be killed. Well, we're not told exactly how, but what we are told is that he wanted his daughter to be a snare, a trap, and that the Philistines could finish him off. This will be David's father-in-law. Saul said this to Elimus, a Jewish sorcerer, who really was irritated by the gospel being preached. Acts 13, Saul said, Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Now I'm going to take you outside and beat you down like you need... No, he didn't go that far. That was me. But <laughs> he stopped that. Will you stop perverting the ways of the Lord? But he wanted to say that, I think. It's my commentary. That's what I would have liked to have said to Saul. What a sicko. Well, what a sinno. I mean, he's not sick. He's a sinner. I mean, the evil of the Spirit came, came into him. God departed and, and left that door open for the, the devil to influence this man. Again, I stand by. If I see Saul in heaven, I will not object. If I don't see him in heaven, I won't be surprised. We go by what we have. This is the record we have. Uh, we, we can't make it spin it because, you know, it's uncomfortable. We must face the facts. And few people in life have the ability to be such a pain in the heart as family. And, you know, they're closer to us. We, we're vulnerable because we're exposed. Many members feel entitled to things that they should not feel entitled to. And... Uh, Families in the Old, we covered this last session, I want to repeat it, because in the Old Testament, they played the dominant role. Uh, the, the sons of, uh, of, of Jacob, the sons of Esau even, uh, I mean, the, just as a, the sons of David. But by the time we come to the New Testament, there are two ships that sail from the harbor of the Lord's work, discipleship and friendship. And uh, this is what the church is built on, and this is what has been carrying the gospel around the world in spite of ethnic barriers and, and other uh, obstacles. It is discipleship and it is friendship. And we have a word, the koinonia, having all, everything in common as friends do. Verse 22, and Saul commanded his servants, communicate, oh, let me pause there, that is not a slight against the family, that's an expansion of it. No one should feel, I mean, there are people that don't have, that don't, do not come from nice families. 
When I worked steel, I met many men who did not come from nice families. And I had to take the time when I talked about our father in heaven, their image of a father was someone coming home drunk and beating up everybody. And so when I spoke of the father in heaven, I had to, the Lord put it on my heart, kind of lay it out a little bit for them that I am holy and pure and loving and explain what love is because they, they want it. Many of them wanted it. And uh, as we talked about Ruth and Naomi, uh, Orpah, they, they never, those Moabite women never met a virtuous woman like Naomi. And they were, you know, even Orpah was reluctant to leave her. And Ruth said, I'm not going anywhere. I am not going back to that life I came out of. I am staying with you. What a witness for Naomi. Verse 22, and Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. Well, David is feeling again humble. It's like, I, I don't deserve, I mean, I don't fit in. This is upper class. This is, this, uh, I'm from a different caste. But sinister Saul, <clears throat> Saul is at work. And so now we come back to, so I think we did this the first time we went through Samuel, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, who employed practices that we find in Saul and Laban and politicians all the world over. And if you don't know who Machiavelli is, then uh, it's, it's a, it would be take just a few minutes to look up a few of his quotes and you got enough of him. There's one thing Machiavelli wrote in his book, The, uh, the, the Prince, and when the prince, not, we think of a prince oftentimes, we think of a, a royal descendant. But a prince uh, can include any high-level government official. It doesn't have to be a bloodline to the king. The crown prince is, but uh, the, ro the royal princes are. But there are other princes in a kingdom, and Machiavelli was one of them. And so our equivalent would be the politician. And uh, I'm not being humorous, that's, that's what it translates to. So he says, and I'll use that word instead of prince, this task requires the politician to be publicly above reproach, but privately may, re, uh, may require him to do immoral things in order to achieve his goals. So what Machiavelli is doing, he is saying, this is how you, you become a politician. This is how you work in politics in uh, various uh, offices, if you are an assistant or an aide or or the actual figure himself, then understand that publicly you have to be seen as a person who is, you know, moral and decent and likable. But privately, you can be a monster. It's okay. Don't worry about this. Here are some quotes, other quotes. A politician never lacks legitimate reasons to break his promise. Then why promise? I promise I'll do it if I don't want to change my mind later. It's not a promise. A wise ruler ought never to keep faith when by doing so, it would be against his interests. So he's just telling them to, you know, lie, be liars. Just whatever you do, get, get, what, get what you want, no matter what it costs everyone else. It is much more secure to be feared than to be loved. As I'd rather people be terrorized by me than love me. A loveless environment, that sounds like hell. If an injury has 
to be done, if an injury has to be done to a man, it should be done so severe that his vengeance need not be feared. You beat down your opponent to the point where you never have to worry about them again. And here's a commentary. Machiavelli does not dispense entirely with morality nor advocate wholesale selfishness or degeneracy. Instead, he outlines his definition of, for example, the criteria for acceptable cruel actions. It must be swift, effective, and short-lived. Machiavelli does not miss the irony in the fact that good can come from evil. I know as you might say, hearing someone read that, you might not be getting it all, but fortunately, we record the messages. <laughs> you can slow it down to that pace. <laughs> so in, in other words, you know, the end justifies the means, uh, and which is, again, right out of hell. That is not what the scriptures teach, or else we'd never have to turn the other cheek when someone offends us. Uh, the turning of the other cheek does not apply to every situation. For example, civil law. I do not want the police to turn the other cheek. I want them to shoot back with accuracy. If the bad guys, I mean, is, uh, you know, serving with the shield is not the same thing as living by the sword. Anyway, verse 23. So Saul's servants, now that we know we got, we're dealing with a Machiavellian type of person. Uh, incidentally, many people in politics read Machiavelli and study him and apply whatever they can apply. So he's not old reading. He's not like Miyamoto Mushashi in the Book of Five Rings. <laughs> you know, although businessmen try to get something out of that, but they really can't get too much. Uh, one of my favorites of... He was a great swordsman in feudal Japan. One of my favorite of his sayings is, when your enemy is about to hit you, hit him. <laughs> well, Miyamoto was very fast, and he could do such things maybe, but... And he had, history records that he has had, had many to the death duels and won them all. Well, anyway, verse 23. Test tomorrow on Samurai history. <laughs> so Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? Again, another tribute to David's father, Jesse. Um, David is just saying, I, I'm, I'm out of my class. And it's not a little thing for me. And so he's, you know, this, he's probably emotional about it because we know David was an emotional man. Sometimes you read the Psalms and you say, David, stop sobbing. I mean, you know, somebody's always after you. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? You, are you bothering people? Uh, anyway, uh, he's sensitive in a righteous way. When David was anointed by Samuel, nobody really understood what was going on. They probably dismissed it to some religious ritual, you know, anointing on David, that God would be with him, but they did not connect it to him becoming king. That secret stayed suppressed for a long time. And we don't hear it publicly referred to until Saul makes mention of it, and we'll get that at the end of chapter 20. Again, Saul does it in chapter 24. Jonathan brings it up in chapter 23. And, of course, Abigail. Um, how can you not love Abigail? <clears throat> she will bring it up when she says, when David, when you become the ruler. She just comes right out and says it. And this is when David is still being hunted by Saul. So the word eventually got out, but not yet. Saul, 
Imagine if Saul knew now that David was anointed going to be king. He just went out and killed him, and that's it. And so uh, David says, I, I can't afford the, the dowry. I cannot pay the price for a bride on such a level. Verse 24, And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, verse 25, The king does not desire a dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And so fortunately for us, the writer is, stayed, is staying focused on what's actually happening. And he's, he's just letting us know Saul is, is a creep. And here is the fourth attempt on David's life in this chapter 18 alone. And of course, he's saying to David, I, I want, instead of bringing me money to marry Michelle, I want a hundred foreskins from the, the Philistines. And verse 26, So when his servants told David these things, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. And we have to pause there. So David says, I could do that. Um, I don't like them anyway. Uh, remember, the, the animosity between these two people were intense. And uh, the Jews wanting to do them in was valid because the Philistines were vicious. In verse 18, where he says, Now the days had not expired, evidently Saul put a time limit on this. Well, I want the hundred foreskins in, you know, two weeks. What, what, why would he do such a thing? Because he's putting pressure on David. He's taking away the ability of, for him to think it through. To, to, he wants him to, you know, be rushed and do something hastily, hastily and and be killed. And so, putting David into jeopardy on the battlefield, that's how Saul saw it. But David saw it as an opportunity to be a champion in Israel. Verse 27, Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought back their foreskins. They gave them in full count to the king, that it might become the king's uh, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave Michelle his daughter as a wife. <laughs> Therefore, David arose and went. Uh, he provides double the price. I mean, Saul, you just would have loved to look at his face when David comes back, first of all, and he pays him double. Psalm 76.10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Yeah, but it, sometimes it takes a while. Now, this is the high side. David is, you know, everything he touches is a victory. It's going to ramp up. Satan is not going to say, okay, I can't touch this guy. Satan is just going to try harder through Saul. And this victory here, bringing back double the price, evidencing God is still with him, the price will look on Saul's face. Uh, Job, chapter 5, speaking of God, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. Now add to that sometimes, because that's the fact. Uh, other times it takes a long time, but right now this applies. It's sort of like the book of Proverbs. Not every proverb applies to every moment all the time. And Proverbs are even clear about that. It's the wisdom that is built into it. 
And the individual has to say to themselves, okay, what side do I want to be on? The side with God or not? And Saul made his choice. But there's another thing that stands out from this 27th verse. It says, he and his men. This is the beginning of people following David anywhere he'd go. He just was that kind of, this is for his bride. We've got your back, David. We're going to go with you. God brought these people into his life. And God will keep people in David's life. Even as Saul is chasing him across the, the, the desert, there are still those that are with David, and they don't leave him. And he just commands uh, such, he's such an attractive character. Every Christian should be very familiar with the life of David. And there's much written about him, too. And it continues into the Psalms. It continues after he's dead. You know, the dedication of the temple. David's mentioned because David did it all as far as the temple goes. He planned it. He paid for it. And he gave his son instructions. And he told him, be a man and get this done. Solomon gets it done and, and then blows much of it. But anyway, um, uh, let's just go back a, a minute to 1 Samuel 15, verse 28, and consider this godly man is better than Saul. Now, that didn't benefit David much in his thinking when he was running from Saul. If I'm the better man, why can't I just sleep in my own bed? Why can't I just not be chased like a dog? Uh, if I'm the king, if I'm anointed, why do I got to put up with this? Why doesn't God kill that guy? Well, David didn't think that way. I would have been thinking that way. David just wanted relief any way God would give it, except through his own hand. And so... Uh, 1 Samuel 15, verse 28. So Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom, speaking to Saul, of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now, who wants to hear that? Just in your profession, do you want to hear it? Maybe you're a carpenter and somebody comes up and says, I'm going to give my work to somebody who's better than you because you're not listening to God. That's why. And that is the story. So, Saul, let's consider some of this being better. He was defenseless against Goliath. There's nothing he could do but shake and cause his men to be just as nervous as him because fear is contagious. But David quickly slew the giant without hesitation. The duel only lasted a few seconds. The, long, the length of a time a rock from a sling to a head, a sword from a sheath to a head. That was the fight. Saul killed thousands. David slew ten thousands. Now, that's not literal. Uh, it's poetic. But the point is, David, was, he was just better. Incidentally, we, knew, we now have another word, being abused. We, awesome, you know, they killed that word. Awesome now means silly. Uh, literally. They literally say literally, literally too much. <laughs> I literally stood there. Why don't you just stand there? That's enough. I don't need to know you literally did it. What if you illiterally? <laughs> okay. Just, so if, if you're literally saying literally too much, you're literally overdoing literally. So what would Dr. Seuss say? Who, who incidentally dresses it a lot of, better than a lot of men. But we'll go into that. <laughs> All right. Considering the better things about Saul, 
He tried to kill David with a spear twice. David spared Saul's life twice. It's just these, these similarities. They're not eerie. They're spiritual. There's proof. There's evidence here that God is with David. It's not just, well, that's your opinion. No, that's the record. And I want it to be that way. Uh, you know, with my life, I want the record to be right, uh, to be appealing to God. Saul uh, tried to murder David by a hundred Philistines. David slew 200 Philistines. David outdid Saul all the way. That's the point. And Saul, of course, defiled himself and stunted his own growth. First reason why, unbelief. He just didn't believe it. So when you read the scripture, you believe. You believe that Jesus died and rose again. Uh, when those who don't are stunting their, themselves, they're harming themselves. Blatant sin. Saul moved into blatant sin. After a while, he won't even care. He'll amass an army to chase David without, you know, uh, any reason. Self-preoccupation was the cause. Blatant sin, unbelief, self-preoccupation. And because he really didn't like God. There's a line for some unbeliever. You know why you don't give your life to God? Because you really don't like him. There, there are many people who don't want to come to church because they are afraid they're going to be convicted to give up some things that they, they love instead of trusting God with it and struggling through those things with God. They'd rather just ignore him. Verse 28, Then Saul saw and knew that Yahweh was with David and that Michelle, Saul's daughter, loved him. Yeah, but you think he would say, you know, God is with this guy. I better get with this guy. What spiritually sane human being would draw such a conclusion and continue to side against God like Judas Iscariot? How would you, how do you do that? You, he walked on water. Don't you think he could beat you up pretty easily? Why would you trade on him? Don't you think he could hear things you're doing? I mean, he was telling the future about things in front of your face. The madness of sin. So, the will of God, it can be approached one or two ways. With your consent or without it. And having watched all his sinister plans fail, we would think that he would change his mind. But, but he kept chasing the carrot. Then there are other evil people. They see their plans happen and, and they succeed and they just keep gaining momentum. I mean, think of Pilate having the, the uh, uh, not Pilate, uh, completely forgot. Uh, uh, I'll come back to it after the commercial. Herod, the great, thank you. Because I'm saying, well, Pilate wasn't great. Who am I looking for? I know the guy's not great. Oh, Herod, the great, who thinks he was great. I mean, he, he, he just got away with so much evil. The killing of the innocents at Bethlehem. I don't want to wait for him to die to get it. I want him to get it on national television. So, the ways of God, we don't know what's going on. And when we find out, we're, going, we're not even we're just going to be, oh, he's God, he's right. Well, anyway, to remain unmoved when convicted by truth. And Saul was convicted by the truth in David's life. He saw these things. Didn't bother him. You bring people to church, they hear a message, they hear the truth, and they're not bothered by it. They, they put their wagons in a circle and say, we're going to fight against what's being said from the pulpit. You know what? The pastor, it's him. He's the problem. 
That's why I don't like that church. Because I don't like the pastor. Why? Because he's mean. What did he do that's so mean? Well, I don't want to say he talked about the sin that I love so much, so I'll find something else. He's too handsome to be up there. No man should be that handsome. <laughs> yep. Anyway. Uh, here's a funny thing, not funny, but about David and Michelle going back to them, considering this being exposed to this righteousness. Uh, she didn't, it, it, God wasn't attractive to her. And therefore, she lost any attraction David might have had for her was lost. When David realized how far removed she was from God, he didn't have one, any, anything else to do with her. His love for God uh, made him unattractive to her and vice versa. So, uh, you know, I would hope, I would like to say to many of those who have come and heard the word of God here, especially those for a long time, the youth, I hope in 10 years' time they go back and they listen to some of these messages to find out just how much their pastor loved them and was looking out spiritually for them by not withholding the truth, but giving it to them, believing that they were sane enough, smart enough, loved enough to receive it, rather than tell them what they want to hear and fluff them up with lies. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and you cannot hear the word of God if you wrap it in a lie or you suppress the truth. And this should be um, our boldness in life. It's an honor to, to preach God's word, whether from a pulpit or from wherever you're standing. And what the other side does with it, that's on them. But hopefully, when they get in time, they'll look back and recognize it. Verse 29, And Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continually. What is that? I, I'm afraid that this guy, God is with him. I hate him even more. Self-inflicted terror is what verse 29 is telling us by fear of God blessing someone else. There's always more space in a hateful heart to hate even more. It's an abyss. There's, there's no, okay, I've maxed out. I can't hate the guy anymore. There's, it just keeps going. And Saul became David's enemy continually, it tells us. To hate him with the hope that uh, it, he would finally kill him. Real hate hopes that another person doesn't get right with God. That's real hate. It is natural to hate one's enemies, but it is spiritual to love them. And the love does not mean, you know, I see you shooting at me, so here's some more ammunition. That's not what's meant. What's meant is that we, we still want to see them saved and would be any part of that process given the chance. The most expensive something in the world is hate. And that is the life of Saul. He, is, he personifies for us hatred. And we're going to get to it as we move through. First John chapter 2, verse 11 he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Not only was Saul that way, but there are, again, people that come to churches and they are this way. They're blind. They have hatred for the truth. 
predators. They come to destroy. We covered this Sunday, Mark chapter 9. The father speaking about what the devil, the demon, was doing to his child. Often he throws him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. If he can't burn him, he'll drown him. Anything he can do to destroy, this is the devil. And this is Saul. The devil gets his work done through people like Saul. Verse 18. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was. Whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. Everybody knew David was good. Everybody knew God was with this man. Saul has this chance again to be this great father-in-law. Instead, he opts to be a devil-in-law. David is being developed as a man of war because he's going to be the king on the throne. And so here is the reminder for Saul. Saul had decided David was the real enemy, and so was God. Uh, this is a tragedy, is what this is. Shakespeare couldn't write this well. So that his name became highly esteemed, it tells us, intensifying the duel between the two men. Uh, Saul, he talked himself into hating David. He loved the way it felt. And he did not care to talk about God's love for him, and we find this still in the world. We find the world talks itself into hating Christians. The world talks itself into hating Christ. The best thing that has ever happened to humanity, the world talks itself into hating. Hatred is a real, real thing. And if you are dealing with someone in life that <clears throat> has a hate issue going on, if you can get to them, then maybe you can share portions of the story of Saul and David. If you cannot get to them, then it's out of your hands, and God has to deal with it. And that was the case with David, because there was no way David was going to convince Saul. In fact, Jonathan makes a little headway with him, with Saul, his father. Takes him on the field, Dad, look, David's a good guy. He's not trying to hurt you or anything. And Saul says, okay, I'm fine, I'm sorry. And then after a while, you know what, I want to kill him. <laughs> just, he just hated him, and uh, because he loved himself so much. Let's pray. Our Father, it is, uh, there are the stories in, in your word. They're real-life stories. No one can dispute that these things take place, that there are people that behave this way. Um, may our responses to the iniquity around us be led by your Holy Spirit, because there we are in safe hands. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.